Well, hello and welcome to the first post-race review podcast from the Formula E 2021 season. And what a remarkable start to the campaign we have to pick the bones out of today. Formula E never fails to surprise and shock in equal measure. And the weekend in Riyadh was no exception. From technical controversies, a first-time winner, a couple of huge shunts, a glut of post-race penalties, and some unlikely cameos from unfancied teams. It was a roller coaster ride you couldn't take your eyes off of for a second. Just when you thought you'd seen everything, there was a suspected Yemeni missile that was shot out of the sky, just as Sam Bird was celebrated on the podium, and genuinely unbelievable. Um, so joining me, your host, Andrew Vandenberg, to look back at this action is our Formula E correspondent, Sam Smith, and the race's Formula E technical correspondent, and also former uh, Super Aguri owner and technical director, Peter McCall. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Uh, it's hard to know where to start with such an extraordinary couple of days of action on and off the track. But um, Sam, let's page rise from one of our other podcasts, Bring Back V10s. When you think of the Deere E-Prix in years to come, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, we're speaking on Sunday afternoon, and until a few hours ago, I think it would have been Nick De Vries's amazing performance and on Friday. But we've, we've subsequently seen the extraordinary accident that befell Alex Lynn. He sort of did a, a, a Mark Webber-style backflip and then skated for about 60 metres on his roll hoop, thankfully without any injury. I think that will be a defining image from the season, probably, and, and one which I think is probably similar to the one we saw in that very first race V2B, which you were at, when Nick Heidfeld had a similarly, similar horrifying accident and, and thankfully walked away as well. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, Peter, you were obviously watching from the comfort of McCall Acres. Um, what did you think of the, the weekend in particular? It was great. I mean, it was non-stop, wasn't it? Both races, uh, if you were a fan, there was, there was always something going on, always something happening. Uh, for me, the standouts were the accidents. Um, as an engineer, I don't like accidents. I don't go and enjoy motor racing for the accidents. So uh, to know that Lynn and Wattara are both safe um, is really, really nice. And so I'm very pleased for that. Nick De Vries on, on, on the Friday and even the Thursday, not putting a foot wrong. That, that looked to be a masterclass. That was great to watch. Wattara's pass in race one, that was something that we should be talking about. I hope we get to that. Um, diving up between two cars in a gap that just didn't look like it was there. Um, and when you saw the onboard footage, it definitely didn't look like it was there. How we got away with that, I don't know. And then I also quite enjoyed the Tech Cheetahs fighting in race two. Um, it's great when two, two top sportsmen in equal machinery get to compete and fight with each other. That's, um, it, it's, it's great from a technical point of view, it's great from a fan's point of view, and it's the characters, it's great to watch. So uh, both races had lots in it for me. Okay, well, let's look back at that first race on Friday, which was won handsomely by Nick De Vries, as Peter mentioned, for Mercedes. Sam, he looked seriously hooked up all day long, and in Formula E terms, he won it a canter. Did that come as a bit of a surprise to you? Uh, yes and no. I, I thought that Merck were going to be strong anyway, because they're Merck, and let's face it, they do things properly. But also, I, I really rated De Vries' season last year, he was very highly regarded as a rookie. He delivered. Yes, there were a few errors, rookie errors, but you know he really did take it to some of the more established stars last season. They have a mighty team, which you know I think has only been bolstered by uh, Nick Chester's arrival from Renault last summer. So in that sense, it wasn't a major surprise. What was a bit eye-opening, I guess, was the factor, the margin that Nick de Vries had in qualifying over, I think it's just over 0.3 seconds, which in Formula E terms, that's a, you know, that's a decent chunk. So, of course, once you've won that first race, you, you, you're highly likely to, to go on a roll. And I think de Vries is capable of, of, of doing that. And, you know, yes, he's going to be in the, um, in, in the Group 1, the feared Group 1 qualifying, which, which never helps. But... I think he's got the capability to be um, one of those drivers, a bit like Jean-Éric Verne. You know, once he once he gets his first win out of the way, then then many others will follow. Very very impressive, um, and I, I really I, I really think that now within that team that that, that Stoffel Van Dorn has, has has got quite a quite a bit to think about going into the next few races. Peter, obviously, um, Stoffel had the disadvantage of uh, going out in that first qualifying group, as all the drivers who did well last season um, had to do. It's a pretty big handicap in Formula E terms. So as, as an engineer, how, how can you 
I don't know, ameliorate that situation. And um, what's your genuine, thought, genuine thoughts on it? Do you think it's a bit of a punishment for success? Uh, so as an engineer, I personally, I don't mind what challenges we're given as long as they're the same for every other, for every other team. It's just one of those things. It's a real challenge. Um, and at Saudi, probably more so. Uh, in fact, no, at Saudi, definitely it's more so because of the nature of the circuit. I mean, tracking pollution is, is huge. And you can see it, you know, every five minutes the track gets better. So if you're out in group one, you really are penalised. But that's something you've got to work on. You've got to work on um, your driver confidence, your setup. There's, there's no magic bullet to it. It's just, it's just lots of effort and concentration in all areas to improve the car so you can get the most out of it. And then it'll, it'll come back to you. It's, the, it's just those are the rules you've got to optimise to them. It makes no difference in... I, yeah, so it could be considered a punishment, but it's equal for everyone. So you've just got to, you've just got to work with it. And, and okay, so for, for qualifying, you've just got to be, you've got to be really slick. You've got to make sure that right from the word go, you've got the setup that gives you driver confidence, and and keep working on that. It's it's no different to any other session. No. it wasn't just De Vries who um, excelled in that race. We saw some great performances from. Uh, Mitch Evans and Rene Rast, and as you mentioned at the beginning, Peter, that absolutely stunning overtaking move from uh, Edo Mortara. Um, Sam, just give us your thoughts on that. I think that's right up there in the best overtakes we've seen in Formula E to date. It was a bit special, wasn't it? I mean, so um, so decisive. It was, and it was really marginal when he could across Evans. It was. I think there was a bit of trust in in Mitch there as well, but finally judged a nice little slalom uh, where he got Verline as well under braking yeah i mean it was it it was spectacular and it made ever more so by the by the um, the helicopter shot as well which i thought showed showed it in all its excellence uh, mortara you know we spoke about him in the preview didn't we with gary paffett and and gary sort of wax lyrical about edo and you know he's known as mr macau and he's a street circuit specialist but in formula e he's been He's been, he's had some coruscating performances, to put it mildly. You know, he's he's had his fair fair share of shunts. Yes, some of the equipment that he's had has been debatable what he could achieve with it. But now that he has um, the equipment beneath him, he's really showing that he can, you know, that he can take it to the to the opposition. And such a shame that he had his accident on on Saturday because I'm sure he would have been right at the sharp end and and challenging and, and potentially could have could have taken the championship lead if it had got a decent result then. Mitch Evans I thought was really strong. He he got a bit scuppered yesterday on, on Saturday with that um that miscalculation from Jaguar and getting him out before the end of the session. Rene Rast I thought was extremely promising in the first race. Um he didn't quite get a podium which was a shame. He just got compromised on the um on the attack mode when the uh, when the safety car came out. So I think Audi are really on the up. So, yeah, th- those three, I think, were the standout performers, performers on Friday. But, of course, compared to Nick De Vries, you know, they, they were somewhere behind. Peter, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Audi had a bit of a meh season uh, last year, but it looked um, on the basis of these two braces, we've seen that they've taken a big step forward. The regulations are, are stable and there's very little... From the outside, it seems you can do. How is it possible to, to make that um, advance in performance? So, yes, software. Software does play a big part of it, and it can't be... You, but you can't neglect any areas. You've got to make sure you make marginal gains in all areas, and you've got to build consistency. So I'm not sure what the big gain is this year. I, I would be more surprised that they didn't... They haven't continued the gains, and they didn't continue the gains through last year. I think Rast makes uh, makes a big contribution. So now Degrassi's got a really top, really top driver alongside him, and I think that ups the game. So I would, I would probably put it down to the driver making a significant difference and allowing everyone to to up their game a little bit. There was one major incident that befell Sam Bird and Alex Lynn uh, on that race, Sam and. The latter came out with the punishment for it. How did you see the call? And um, yeah, do you think that was the right decision? Yeah, I think so. I don't think there was much doubt. I mean, the regulations dictate you can only make one defensive move, and and it was clear that Alex made um, 
made two. I mean, this was something that came up in Berlin last summer. There were some really um, high, wide and handsome, like we, let's say, um, defensive moves going on on the wide expanses of Tempelhof. But it doesn't matter which track you're on, the rules are the rules. And, you know, if, if you start switching around mid-track um, mid and, it, it, you know, you, you can get some very serious accidents. I mean, we saw one... Um, obviously with, with Alex yesterday, it, it can very easily become one of those shunts and that's why the rule is in place. So yeah, I, you know, I don't think I don't think it's the worst I've ever seen, but but certainly I think that the stewards got that right. And you know, Sam was Sam was rightly a, a bit miffed by it, had a little had a little sort of just gesticulation at uh, Alex when he marched into the Mahindra engineering office, I heard. So, you know, they're ex teammates, I'm sure they're as professionals that have got over it within an hour of the checkered flag coming out. But um, yeah, unfortunate because uh, for both of them, of course, they they both retired from the race when they were in good positions. And, you know, it was, it was only halfway through the race itself. So a little bit unnecessary, I think, from, from, from Lynn there, but he, uh, he, he got punished for it and, and probably rightly so. Another one of the, the talking points happened in qualifying where um, Muller, Blomqvist and Cassidy all had their times uh, scratched despite them having really no option but to complete the lap where, where the yellow flag was. Sam wrote a, a pretty um, stinging article about it. Peter, how do you see that? And it, it, Can the stewards be a, show a little bit more lenience in these situations? So from my perspective, it, it's, it's really clear um, it's the regulations that need to be... It's an example of the regulations catching us out. Um, everybody did what, what, they, what they were expected to do. The stewards could only... Uh, apply the penalty that it says in the regulations they can do, and it's the regulations I think that need to be uh, needed need to be reviewed because it was it did seem a real injustice. It really did seem a real injustice. And if you said it in the rules, whether the following cars could slow down properly and they could have an attempt to to requalify, um, that would uh, that would help. That would be one way around that situation. Having said that, you have to be careful. People don't game the rules. Um, because if you were able to have your qualifying session right at the end of all the previous qualifyings, you would be at a distinct advantage because the tracks rubbered in and, and, and improved significantly. So it's something that does need to be considered, not just over a weekend, it needs to be considered properly away from the track uh, to work out an option that would allow the stewards uh, less draconian actions on those, on those drivers that were involved in that situation. Sam, do you think that there will be um, some sort of tweak to the regulations as a result of this, maybe following on the lines of something Peter suggested there. I hope so. Yeah, I mean Peter's right. It's uh, everything was done correctly, and you know you can't you can't expect not to get punished for for going past double wave yellows. I mean that means be prepared to stop. But in the context of a one lap shootout, um, that the, the regulation doesn't allow for another go. So you know if it had been a red flag, it wouldn't have been a problem. They'd, they'd have got another shot. So it doesn't make uh, that much sense, and I think they have to change it because I think it's uh, if it happens again in a in a later race, it, you know, a title shootout, it could affect a, a championship. Um, or, like I suggested in my article, you know, some accidentally on purpose shenanigans. Which, let's face it, we've seen in Formula One, haven't we, over the last sort of fifteen twenty years with with Messrs uh, Schumacher and allegedly Rosberg as well. So, I you know, I the the one thing that sort of rubbed a great deal of salt into the wound was the fact that Sete Camera started the race ahead of all three of those that had been penalised, um, you know, which I just think was absurd. I mean, if you've got new fans coming to, you know, the casual observer who's just flicking through channels and sees that, they'd just probably turn over and watch, you know, the snooker instead because it just it just seems unfair. So, yeah, they, they, they were all very, very um, exorcised about it. Uh, the drivers and rightly so because it just you know it just doesn't seem like a, a common sense approach to have but you know let, let's wait and see I think uh, it'll certainly it should certainly be discussed at the very least. Well you're giving me um, the, the, my soapbox to stand on there because you, you couldn't be flicking through the channels to, to have found these races this weekend you had to wait for the, the red button to load up for a seemingly interminable time and then hope that you would find it on the on the homepage on the on the BBC thing there I think um the production that the, the championship puts on itself has done a massive disservice by how hard it is to find a TV product there. And I, 
you know, uh, I, I think it's seven seasons in. It should be better than this, in all honesty. But anyway, there was another opportunity to scrabble around using the uh, the red button uh, the next day. But before the race had, or before qualifying had even done, word was coming out that um, Mortara had had this enormous crash. Um, Sam, can you explain a little bit about what happened? Because m- many people probably might not have, uh, have seen it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if it was it was a very scary accident, and Mortara just completed the third practice session and was doing a practice start, which all of the drivers do uh, after the session has finished. And as he got to turn one, he just ploughed straight off and sort of beyond the wall. There's a sort of tech pro area sort of offset from the actual wall and went straight uh, at an unabated speed. I mean, into the wall, pushing the concrete reinforcements back significantly. It was, it was a big hit. Uh, now you know what it's one thing to have a, a an accident because of a sporting nature, but another to have a an incident like this. I, I think there's kind of there's three accidents, aren't there, that everyone fears. One is the classic front wing going underneath the car and and not having any steering or brakes. You know, another is a wing falling off. Um, yeah, stuck throttle obviously isn't pleasant, but you know, not to have any braking capability at all is um, yeah, pretty terrifying just to watch, let alone been in the cockpit there what 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 seems to have happened is that um we're, we're, we're talking about in formula e we're talking about pretty complex braking systems so it seems as though well it has been confirmed that there was a a software glitch uh in the braking system and which which lost the front brake pressure that that's one thing but the other thing is that the they should have, well, they do have a backup braking system, which should then kick in, uh, which didn't. And it was proved not to have taken place. So that system didn't happen. Edo was straight to the scene of the shunt. It was a really serious one. And he was really lucky not to escape any injury with that one. We've seen similar episodes before. I remember Daniel Apt having something similar in Mexico last year. Nick De Vries had a, a smaller speed incident. And, and Mortar himself had one at the same track at Diria in 2018 in the inaugural race there. So what happened next was the FIA quite rightly questioned the failure uh, and worked with Mercedes engineers to ensure it could evidence that they knew what the problem was and that it could be fixed. This they did, and the three remaining Mercedes cars started the race after missing that qualifying session. So, I, you know, th- there may be more of this to come. I'm sure there'll be a, a a bit of a supplementary investigation as well, because, like I said, it's it's such a serious it's such a serious incident to take to take place. Because you know, not only was Mortara at, at, at great risk, but you know, you've got marshals and, and track workers at the corners as well. And you, you, the last thing you want is a, an out of control car with no brakes coming anywhere anywhere near you so yeah it was a, it was a lucky escape all round. and um, peter the braking systems are one of the more complex elements of a formula e car and to the layman can you just explain how brake by wire works because there's not maybe not something that they might be familiar with okay uh so brake by wire is only required on uh, electric vehicles where you are trying to recover energy from uh, from a wheel pair so normally on your on a normal um, internal combustion engine road car, you have two braking circuits, one for the front wheel and one for the re- rear wheels. So that they're, they're both hydraulic circuits and there's a bit of redundancy uh, in that system there. So if one system failed, the other pair of wheels will always work. And that's the way it's always been in racing cars as well. And people take these systems very seriously set them up, they bleed them, and they operate them as carefully as they possibly can. Um, with Formula E, because it's got a, a, the rear wheels are driven by an electric motor, you can also uh, run them, uh, you can also recover energy through that uh, electric motor, as making it a generator at the rear wheels. And when you do that, um, you're demanding torque from the rear wheels, so you don't need the hydraulic braking circuit to work on the rear wheel pair. And so what brake by wire does, it's a, it's a computer system that controls the amount of uh, braking torque between the rear wheels and the front wheels and between the hydraulic system on the rear wheels and the energy recovery 
system on the rear wheel. So if you're lifting and coasting, you're putting brake torque back in and then recovering energy from the rear wheels. And so you have to make sure, and then when you brake heavily, um, you want to try and recover the energy first, primarily, um, back from the rear, back from the, the energy that the car's got in it, convert that through the motor into electricity to put back into your battery so that you, you can be as efficient as you can with your energy usage around a track. And to do that, you've got to, you've got to vary and, and cut off and reduce the amount of hydraulic braking you're doing on the rear wheels. So the brake by wire system has sensors in it and it balances so that the driver doesn't know or shouldn't know that there's any difference in the braking performance of his car, whether he is recovering energy through the rear wheels or braking hydraulically normally through the rear wheels. And that's what the brake by wire system does. Oh, thanks, thanks, Peter. It's, fa it's fascinating stuff and it is something that's unique to the Formula E uh, at, at top level racing anyway. Um, but Sam, the consequence of that was that the Mercedes cars didn't take part in qualifying, as you said. Did you think the FIA did the right thing there? Yes, of course. I think safety uh, comes first. You have to be 100% sure that the car's on the track are safe. That's a, a clear priority. Um, but it is disconcerting how... how often this happens you know i mentioned those examples before that's four incidents in the past calendar year and we've not even uh, sorry no with with mortaras was 2018 but we've had two uh, three significant ones with the two in mexico that i mentioned with apt and uh, and devries so yeah, i i think the faa have to have to prioritize uh this and they have to learn and understand what has gone on here um that, that you know that, that there's a labyrinth a myriad of of software coding applications it's a very complex area of of motorsport engineering and and not not unique to formula e but the the depth of what the teams do in terms of developing and and and, and coming up with some of these very clever systems to help manage the cars is very proficient in Formula E. I mean, all all accidents are dangerous, we know, but these ones are viewed as unacceptable by the FIA, and, and, and rightly so. And I think I think there'll be a deeper dive into into the, some of the things that that have happened there, and, and hopefully that they can be learnt from. Because uh, you know, nobody nobody wants to see a driver um, have that kind of accident. Uh, you know, having having heard from Mortara's description of the of the shunt. You could see he was. Uh, I think he was still in shock. Actually, he'd gone to the hospital and he came back. I remember speaking to Daniel Apts after last year's Mexican race, and, and and Daniel wasn't. You know, he wasn't there really. He did race in that race, but he he. Uh, I think he retired halfway through. It, uh, that kind of accident psychologically must take quite a long time to get over. You know, it's it's one thing to have a shunt with a car, and you know. Hit, hit a few walls and you know even even have a roly-poly or whatever but you know what has caused that you know you're almost prepared for it as a racing driver in some psychological degree but but to have you know to be furiously pumping a brake pedal and and then just seeing the wall come at your at your helmet like that um it, that that takes time to get over and uh, let's all hope that that Mortara will I'm, I'm sure he will I, I think it's just trying to rationalize it and understand it from uh from a practical and engineering point of view will will help him do that but uh yeah the, the fia did the right thing for sure in in not allowing those cars to to uh, have access to the track in, in qualifying so when the session did take place it was uh, robin frines for envision virgin that took the pole his first in the series despite being an almost an ever present since uh, season two um are Envision back? They certainly are. Um, they, they they were a bit lost on Friday, that's for sure. Robin shunted and and missed qualifying uh, slightly contentiously, actually, because the G the G sensor went off and McLaren had to change the the battery in the car, so he missed qualifying, which effectively ended his you know any chance of a result that day. And Nick Cassidy was um, got compromised by the Sete camera debacle we touched on earlier, so. On Friday evening, the team had a, a lengthy Zoomathon. You know how how twenty twenty one is that? But they 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 were back at their remote capability in Silverstone, where Chief Engineer Chris Gorn was running the show. Got everyone together. That went on for a number of hours. They they made massive changes, a complete about turn, and it worked in Fries' favour. On Saturday, he was bang on the pace and able to 
steal his uh, his first pole position and and and, and then take second place in the race. While well, Cassidy finished fifth on the road, but then got pinged for a, a full course yellow infraction. So it, they're back certainly, um, and they made short work of it. You know, less than less than twelve hours really. What you've got to remember though, with a customer team such as Envision who use Audi powertrains, is they don't get uh, a test day allocation. So. Perhaps it's a legacy of this. I don't know. I, I actually haven't spoken to the management of the team yet, but it will be interesting to see precisely what they did. But uh, yeah, whatever they did, they should stick with it because they were they were right on it. And, and Robin, as ever, was uh, you know showed all the flair that we've come accustomed to in in, in the race that he ran. Uh, Peter Sam there mentioned that the remote working that was done o- over Zoom, it, it's something we've all had to become accustomed to over the past year. I mean, we probably would have all tried to get into a studio and recorded this podcast uh, in 2019 rather than doing it from whatever, you know, back uh, garden offices or wherever we all are at the moment. So how, was, how have things changed in, in your world? And, um, you know, would you, are you looking forward to getting back to uh, the, what, how things used to be? Yeah, remote working. Um, it's interesting. It's what we've all been doing for the last year. Um, interestingly, now uh, the FIA are trying to limit the amount of uh, remote strategy room engineers, the amount of people that the teams have working on the car remotely because as engineers, we're all used to working uh, remotely and looking at screens and looking at data. So just talking into a screen and having, having Teams and Zoom and Skype meeting is now the norm for us. And anything that we can do to optimise performance, if we, any data that we can get, that we can look at, that can uh, unlock a little bit more performance, um, and the more engineers you can get looking at performance, that can offer those little uh, those little nuggets that are important that uh, maybe the engineers at the track haven't spotted because they're just under so much pressure um, during these one-day formats. So. For engineers, it's, it's great working from home, working from wherever you are, looking at the data. It's really easy, um, but it has got to has got to be limited um, during the races because otherwise it will get excessive. And you can see why when teams have a, a big meeting late into the evening, um, everybody can talk, all details can be reviewed and aired, and um, yeah, progress, significant progress, can be made as as in this case. In the race, um, Robin couldn't quite hang on, and it was Sam Bird who came through to win on his first weekend for Jaguar Racing and keep up his amazing record of having won a race in every single season. Um, is this the start of a Sam Bird Jaguar Racing title fight? Yes, I think so. I think that that's what we're looking at here. I, I, it's so early to to make these kind of uh, predictions, but you know, Sam, Sam Bird has the experience and he has the hard knocks to uh, to have learned by now. He's Every season, every start of season, we saw it last campaign. He he just looks so hungry, so up for it, and you know I I need to cut cut a bit a few slices of humble pie here actually and uh, share it between us because in our last preview episode I predicted that they would they would be good but they would start slowly. You know how wrong was I? That was not <laughs> the greatest prediction in the world. But then again, I did call Nick DeVries to win, so there's there's the yeah uh, la- yeah late equaliser there. So I'll take that one. Uh, but Jags Jags were terrific all all week. That you know they looked right at the right at the top of the pace all week. They've got an efficient powertrain in Evans and Bird. Obviously, they've got accomplished performers. Um, you know, they, they must be ruining the fact that they, they took that, that ludicrous risk in qualifying on Saturday with, with Evans. And yes, he did get slightly compromised by Roland, but how many times have we said it on these podcasts? Why take the risk? Um, it just doesn't make sense. There's so much at stake that, you know, you just why leave it to the last few seconds and they got caught out as did Audi um and you know I'll never really understand that but you know going to the positives Jaguar were quick they got a podium with Evans in the first race Bird would have been there or thereabouts had it not been for the shunt with Lynn and then on Saturday Bird was uh peerless yeah he made an instant move on Sete Cameron to the first corner and then he took the lead it swapped around with Frines but you always felt that Bird was a bit more in control, um, and, and yes, bit of a damp squib at the end. But I, I always felt that you know, even though that Frines is a, a first competitor, that Sam just seemed he just looked stronger and seemed destined 
to win that race, which you know he he did do the last time they were in Derrière, of course, in when he was in Vision Virgin, and and he's he's continued this remarkable run of winning in in every season. The only driver to do it, um, uh, and that's that's seven up for him, isn't it? Seven wins from seven seven wins at least one in each season. So yeah, fair play to him. It's a great start for him. Uh, it's amazing because really. I don't think there's a time, and maybe we'll see if it plays out this way, that he's actually been in the best car. You know, especially in season two, in that twin motor DS thing, how he hustled that to uh, to victories was a, was astonishing. Um, but talking of uh, astonishing or maybe unlikely performances, um, we saw Penske and Neo right up there in race two, um, and uh, you know, a bit of a, a rejuvenation of their performance. Yeah, some really good feel good stories though, weren't there? Uh, Neo three 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 in particular, I thought were excellent. You know, they're they're, they're essentially a, I mean, not a new team in terms of personnel, but the structure of that that uh, squad is, is is very new and, and this is essentially their first season last year they were treading water with old equipment and, and finding their feet but they've really done that uh, there was a there's a real sense of energy and positivity pre-season at the pre-season test in Valencia and that's borne out with Turvey getting a 10th and a 6th place and you know he didn't really put a f- foot wrong did, did Turvey and you know just reinforced his reputation as a as a as a sort of no no nonsense go and get it go and get the points type driver you know he's he he was excellent last weekend and and I think they've got a great chance of getting regular points this season which will breathe more added positivity into the team I'm sure uh, Dragon Penske uh, they had an event of two halves and kind of mirrored envisions in a way really in Saudi Muller fought back from a practice shunt to get sixth. On Saturday, but for me, Sete Camera was the the star performer. A brilliant qualifying super pole appearance from the, the youngest driver on the grid, uh, front row, and then getting that fourth place as well. Yeah, it did owe to a, a little bit of a little bit of luck, a little bit of fortune with the uh, the full course yellows and the, and the safety cars there, and also the penalties, of course. Um, but he got fourth place. That's Dragon's best result for three years. And uh, yeah, it's just a real shame that that Jay Penske wasn't at the track to see that because he was, uh, according to the team, conducting other business from his Riyadh hotel room. And Peter, when a team has spent time like that, as Sam said, it's three years since uh, Dragon Penske had had a, a notable result. How did, how do you get it back on track? How do you get the muster together to to drive a project forward again? So I don't think there should be any any major change. Um, in what these teams do, if they've got a, a plan, a vision, and a strategy, and they've got the resources to do it, um, and, and smart people setting the vision and the strategy, nothing should change. Um, the problems normally come about when they haven't got full budgets, or there's a discrepancy and a mismatch between uh, the vision and the targets that are set internally, and maybe the budget, uh, the resources, or the capability that the teams have got to deliver it. So I think if you've got if you've got the resources, you should just set a, set a really good strategy and try and deliver it year in year out, not a strategy that will change you and turn you around in one year. That's just not possible these days. You've got to have a multi-year incremental uh, flow and a gain um, to your strategy, and that allows you to set a really good culture. And if you can get a really good culture going, and the vision is uh, aligned with the strategy. Then there's no. Then all you've got to do is just work hard um, to deliver that strategy. Now there are some things that never change, and one of those was the multitude of post-race penalties. There were there were more than there were in an FA Cup fourth-round replay for you to study there, Sam. Um, but the headline was John Eric Verne losing his third place for not using his second attack mode despite the race finishing under the four-course yellow and then the red flag. Was that fair? Um... You know, it's a bit like the one we mentioned before about the qualifying situation. By, by, by the rules, it's to the letter of the law, and you know, rules are rules, aren't they? But yeah, when you when you look at it, it it doesn't make a whole load of sense. There's a seventy five percent rule where you you have to use your uh, attack mode, but when a race is suspended and then a driver is shuffled out the points because of uh, you know an incident not of his making, then yeah. You can argue it. You can argue it either way. I, I think it's harsh. I think the bigger picture for something like this is how 
fans and enthusiasts and viewers, if you, you know, if unlike you, VDB, they get through the labyrinth of uh, the iPlayer or Red Button or whatever, um, <laughs> they, um, it, it's just confusing. You know, it just confuses them because they see Jean-Éric Verne pull up in Parc Fermé, punch the air, get on the podium, have a, have a little uh, a jig on the podium and it's all happy days. Half an hour later, if you're lucky, more like three hours later, the FIA have got a you know an entry that's that, that's sort of six feet high with different penalties, and you've got a completely different result. And you know, I think there were I think there were six drivers affected from the provisional to the final result yesterday. And yeah, okay, you know, you've got the stewards have got to do their job, and they're working to the rules, but. Every season, there seems to be these anomalies which are found uh, within the the regulations, which just confuse the people who are watching it. And, and let's not forget, it's not just the people who are watching it, it's the people paying for it as well. So it's partners, it's activations of, of major companies that are involved in the teams who will get their press release and, and then actually get another press release saying, oh, sorry, that one was wrong. We actually didn't finish third. We didn't finish sixth. We're actually 12th or 14th. Well, it's not a great look, is it? I, I, I don't know of another sport. Okay, you know, you have your stewards' inquiries in horse racing, but that you know they don't happen as frequently. I don't think as and, and go on as long as they do in in motorsport. So yeah, a, a messy one. I feel I feel for Vern. I think he's got a point when he's you know if he's quite critical of 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 this rule, and I think they've got to look at refining these things a bit more in, in the future because it just you know to be fair to the stewards and the FIA in recent years they have expediated the process and now where possible the the penalties are applied uh, during or just after the race but you know last night I you know I, I mean I, I was quite lucky because the time difference was uh, was was not too bad from the UK, but you know I know people who who didn't get any sleep last night because they were there at the track till you know two one two in the morning. Um, and it's like I say, the bigger picture is what it does for for people looking in and and those involved in the uh, in the championship itself. But anyway, the the outcome of that was it was um, his teammate Antonio Felix da Costa, the reigning champion, that moved up to third. And it had been quite an interesting race for the two of them, a bit of wheel banging, the, the Lions fighting over the meat. For those of you who listened to the uh, uh, chat we had with um, Antonio on this podcast a few weeks back, um, what did you make of his title defence, Sam? It was a bit low-key, wasn't it? I, I, I thought it was a bit low-key from Antonio. I was expecting a, a little bit more from Diesta Chita. Obviously, being in Group 1, he was amongst many who, who struggled and, and suffered because of that, which was to be expected he came through to 11th just missed out on a point in friday's race uh, much stronger on on saturday as we expected and then we had this sort of choreography didn't we which ds Cicita have done sometimes well sometimes they've tripped themselves up and at this time things got hairy there was contact between the two uh Vern was on his uh attack mode and thought that he should have had uh, clearance to get past the Costa and make some hay there. Ultimately, what it did was it just made Bird and Frines break away at the front and Diesta Cheetah lose any chance of either of their drivers winning the race. So, yeah, they, they, I spoke to Mark Preston actually last night and you know he did admit that they've got to try and be quicker in trying to, to get these uh, choreographed moves right it's not easy i mean it's an absolute minefield when you factor in the pressure the stress and the uh, everything that goes on you know irony of ironies the ds to cheetah pit to car radio which is usually something that you know i'm i've, I've sort of got got as a kind of drip when i'm watching the races because it's so entertaining wasn't working yesterday uh, so there was no tv uh sound bites of da costa or Vern and, and and non-available for fans which again is a is, is isn't great you know that's 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 what people want to see they want to see and hear their their heroes under pressure but yeah back to the costa bit low-key but you know he's antonio felix da costa isn't he? he's uh interestingly i, I spoke to <laughs> i spoke to one of the team when he was on his on his pits car radio the intra intra team one um his, his engineer reportedly said to him 
on Saturday after Friday's disappointment. Antonio, we're back in the game. To which the Costa uh, retorted, I am the game. <laughs> which I thought was a great quote. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to more action from Antonio and obviously a, a driver that Peter knows very well. Yeah, Peter, you were there um, when he took probably the great underdog victory in, in formerly history uh, in, in Buenos Aires. Um, what's, what's he like to work with? He's awesome. He's, uh, he's very good. He's, uh, he's really consistent when you talk to him. So he doesn't get, he doesn't get phased. Um, he's also very smart, and I think that helps. Um, so when you want feedback from him, he's very, very analytical and very clear and very consistent. So emotionally, he's... Um, gives good feedback and he's and he's really quick and if you can if you can combine that with being able to be really good with energy management um, you've got a you've got a really top driver so it's not surprising uh, to me that he's come through and won the world championship um, I hope he continues to do that he's got a really positive and consistent attitude and I think that that makes him great to work with so uh, yeah I think he does a great job now, these post-race penalties came as a result of the race ultimately being red flagged, and that happened due to an enormous accident that befell Alex Lynn uh, after contact with Mitch Evans. Most of it wasn't caught on TV or by the TV cameras at all. So, Sam, you've been trying to piece together the, the bits of what we know, and thankfully that Alex is all right. But can you just give us a, an, an overview of exactly what happened? Yes. Uh, so, Lynn, uh, Lynn was on Evans's tail coming into turn, um, I forget which turn it was now, turn 10. Um, so it's a long straight followed by a, a right-left complex and right on Evans's tail, he went to the inside. Uh, Mitch defended and Alex was launched over the back of the Jaguar. Um, if you think, if you can recall Mark Webber's accident at, at Valencia in 2010, I think it was, reminiscent of that although he didn't get the height of Weber thankfully but it was very reminiscent of that and he did a he went full uh, perpendicular and up in the air onto his hoop and then slid I'm told around 50 to 60 meters on his roll hoop down the escape road and into a wall which he moved substantially when he hit it so absolutely terrifying accident for Alex thankfully we know we now know that he's okay I spoke to Dilbert Gill his team principal this morning who says that Alex is is fine he was checked up he's got a sore knee but that's about it he's not even had paracetamol so that's the main thing that's the good news the car is completely 100% a write-off Dilbert Gill said he said that the halo contributed to Alex's safety um, but the car is scrap a massive uh, relief that, that Alex is fine from that substantial accident and, and, and one which the footage has now been released. So when uh, we, we did our piece this morning, we had seen some of the footage, but it's now been released. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wild ride, that's for sure. And uh, everyone's thankful that there were no injuries to, to Alex or anyone else in that, that scary accident. Peter, another amazing testimony to the work the FIA has done uh, with driver safety, with especially relating to the halo uh, and and just the general survival cell of the car. Um, you think that's fair? I do, I do. I think that's that's really good. The other other point that we can note and we can draw reference uh, to is that there's no there's not uh, two hundred kilos of, of of fuel in the car, um, so there's no likelihood of a big fireball at the end of it with a driver trapped in an upside down car um, so that's quite nice to see halo halo's halo's great um, i think that's a really good innovation um, i've always been surprised at the uh, the potential criticism that was foreseen that there was in halo and that was foreseen with its introduction i've always been a fan of it um, and we can see that recently two, two accidents, one in F1 and, and two here, where the Halo's made a significant contribution to the safety of the driver. And I hope that push for safety continues. Um, we've got to work out what's the, what's the next thing, what's the next step. We should never take safety for granted. There are plenty of other safety innovations that we could consider and should be considered. Um, and and we, should, we should never accept that we, we've got the safest racing car that we possibly have, have got. There'll always be examples uh, of freak accidents or something that we haven't quite envisaged, or even the unintended uh, dangerous consequence of something that has been introduced. 
that overall gives a big safety advantage, but has uh, in one rare uh, rare example or rare case might, might actually um, be damaging to the driver. But we've got to constantly try and improve the safety of the car. That would be my take home message from this. And great that it is that two drivers have walked away from two big accidents. Um, we just can't take it for granted. Neither should the FIA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sam, there are two teams that we haven't mentioned, Porsche and BMW. Well, what did you make of their performance? Uh, Porsche seemed to have a, some decent one-lap pace, but maybe have some consumption issues. Yeah, it was a bit scrappy from Porsche. Their Verline was was right up there in, in uh, the first race on Friday, uh, but it ultimately got shuffled down. And, and it seemed to be that they, they didn't quite have the the efficiency in their, their, their setup on that occasion. Um, and then Verline had a bit of a bruising race yesterday on on Saturday, uh, involved in multiple multiple contacts, most terminally of which for Jake Dennis was uh, with the BMW driver. He sort of, um, how can I say, it didn't it didn't even shut the door. He kind of slammed it and then pulled it off its hinges and stuffed him into the wall, uh, which he was penalised for. It's a bit of a slam dunk that one. Um, Lotterer had a, a messy week and he went off in practice on Saturday morning, compromised him, started from the pit lane, didn't really make a great deal of progress. And the day before he had a puncture, unfortunately, I think from the debris of the Burden Lynn accident. So uh, had to make a pit stop and, and finished well down. So, yeah, not great for, for Porsche, but at least they seem to have some pace. BMW do have pace, but it was uh, I don't think it was it was seen because of Various factors, not least of which uh, was was some accidents. We mentioned the one for Jake Dennis. On the whole, I thought Jake Dennis was pretty good on his debut. He did a he did a decent job. Didn't make any substantial mistakes. Learned a lot. So there's there's some good uh, there's a decent prognosis for Jake Dennis there. Max Gunter had a a complete weekend to forget. Um, he, he crashed in both races. Uh, quite a big one in the first encounter, and then he uh, wiped out. Tom Blomqvist in the second, so yeah, he's he's got to he's got to bury that one very quickly. So yeah, BMW disappointing. Uh, Porsche didn't come away with much, so they'll be hungry for for Rome, and of course, uh, uh, all those drivers will be in Group One, I think. Uh, certainly, the Porsche drivers and and, and Gunter will be, so uh, they will be dangerous uh, in the Eternal City. So, talking of Rome, um, Peter, there'll be three teams introducing their new homologation packages there, Diesta Cheetah, Nissan and Dragon. Do you expect that to make a big difference to the competitive order? I don't actually expect us to see a significant difference uh, when those teams introduce their new packages in Rome. New packages always give you the opportunity for making a step change, and that, that shouldn't be missed, and the teams will be really hoping it's made a significant change. But also, these cars are, are really quite complex, and they need setup time and they need optimising time. And doing that at a, I know they've had test days, but also it's when you get into a racing environment that you that you also really learn. So I don't expect it to be such an obvious difference at Rome. I'm expecting the gains to be seen cumulatively over the rest of the season. That would be my my observation on what I think is going to happen. Uh, Sam, how how are you expecting things to play out? By the looks of it, we're in for another ultra-competitive season with just about every team potentially a a race, or if not a race winner, a podium finisher. Yeah, absolutely. Completely open. And I think it will be a bit like season five in the sense that we'll have multiple winners. We'll we'll go to the final race, wherever that is. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, we'll find out the second phase of the calendar. And I think we'll go to that last event with three, four, potentially even more genuine title contenders. I don't see anyone uh, really doing what Nick de Vries did on that first race. I think that's going to be a bit of an anomaly and, and all the better for it. You know, how many how many championships in the world can you say that about? Not many, genuinely. So I think it's I think it's going to be terrific. And and as we saw at the weekend, um, yeah, accidents are part of racing and and they you know what, what whatever people like to say about it, they do bring in extra eyeballs to to what what we're doing and i you know i think there is scope for the popularity of formula e to for this season to be a really defining season for the championship um and it'll be all the better for it because sportingly i think it's going to be excellent it's just impossible to guess who could take the title as as we uh 
as we proved in our predictions with uh, Gary Paffett a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. So on that point, to round off, I think we should all uh, choose our driver of the weekend. Um, Peter, you can go first. Who was who was your one standout performer? Nick DeFries. Uh, quite easily was the, would, be, would be my first choice. Uh, the Thursday and the Friday was was impeccable. And so he would be my top driver. Sam Bird also, uh, race two, he was, uh, he was exceptional, I thought. Really, just really competent, and I like that. Um, and then the third driver, if I had to pick, I'm not sure, Evans, Rast, Mutara, probably. Um, yeah, so Nick DeFries, Sam Bird, and Mutara for me, top three. Sam, who, who are your selection? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree on two of those with Bird and uh, De Vries. Definitely thought they were excellent. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for Sergio Sete Camera because yes, he made a mistake in the first in the qualifying in, in Friday, but he is a rookie. You know, this is only his second event, and he's driving um, probably the least consistently competitive package on the grid. So. Sete Camera thought was fantastic to put a Dragon Penske second on the grid and then to race it to fourth is pretty Herculean. So, uh, yeah, well done to him. Um, no surprises from me with uh, De Vries and Bird, but I'm, I'm going to go for Oliver Turvey as my, um, as my third. I think he's just so amazingly accomplished it, bringing home the bacon when it's there to be had. You know, Neo 333 might not have another chance as good as that, so he, but he's absolutely maximised what was on the on the table for him there. So, yeah, that's my choice. Well, thanks for listening to this uh, review of the Deria race, everyone. As ever, you can read all of the formerly news and analysis from uh, Sam on thehighfromrace.com and please check out our other podcasts from Formula One, MotoGP, uh, and our Bring Back V10 series. Uh, we'll be back soon. There's a bit of a gap before uh, the next race in Rome. Um, I don't know whether we'll do one in between or not. Let's see what happens. We can be uh, we can be um, patient like that. But uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. And Sam, um, thanks. Good to have you along. 